Hi, I'm Anthony Sharwood, Environment Editor at the HuffPost Australia, and this is Breaking the Ice. So much of the news cycle these days is dominated by climate science. We read and we hear so much about the perils of a warming world and about how we're going to tackle these challenges. But what do we know about the people who are telling us the world is warming? Who are they? Can we trust them? In this series, we meet many of the world's most eminent climate scientists. We find out what they're working on, how they go about gathering their data. But we go a lot deeper than that. In this series, we find out who the climate scientists are. We discover how they're responding, both professionally and personally, to death threats, to defamation, to all sorts of attacks on their credibility. We're calling this series Breaking the Ice because it no longer makes sense to talk about climate science without knowing who the scientists really are. Professor Michael E. Mann is a climatologist and geophysicist who is director of the Earth System Science Centre at Penn State University. Michael is probably most famous for developing the so-called hockey stick graph, a graph which conclusively showed how temperatures have increased dramatically in the industrial age. Michael also won fans recently for his book, The Madhouse Effect, Climate Change Denial in the Age of Trump. But Michael has his enemies. Michael, here are some of the things that have happened to you over the years. You've had a US State Attorney General try to strip you of your academic credentials. You've had death threats to both you and your family. You've been told you should be fed to pigs. You've been likened to Holocaust deniers. You've been likened to a child-molesting football coach at the university where you teach. You've been sent suspicious packages. You've been investigated by the CIA. All of this because you study and teach atmospheric science. So, Michael, I've been a sports reporter for many years in addition to writing about the environment, and there's a question which sports reporters always ask athletes, and I'd like to ask you that question now. It's a little bit cliched, but here it comes. Michael Mann, how are you feeling? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, science has become a full contact sport, <laughs> especially if you're working in uh, areas, contentious areas like climate change. And, you know, it's not what I signed up for when I decided to major in applied math and physics uh, as an undergraduate and went off to study theoretical physics, eventually moved into the field of, of uh, climate science. Little did I realize that I was putting myself on a trajectory that would take me ultimately to the very center of the most contentious, uh, you know, debate um, uh, we've in, in, really ever had societally, the debate over uh, climate change and what to do about it. Um, so it's not what I signed up for, but having found myself at sort of the, the center of that storm, you know, ultimately I, I've embraced that role um, because um, it's given me an opportunity to inform uh, this uh, discussion about what may be the greatest threat we've ever faced as a civilization. I feel uh, honored to be in a position to do that. So while it's hardly what I signed up for, you know, when I decided to go into science, um, uh, ultimately uh, it's given me an opportunity to do something that I feel is important and I have no regrets. I mean, were you a combative kid when, when you were a kid? Were you, if, if, if someone pushed you around, did you push them back? Yeah, no, I, I was. Um, I, I wasn't big. 
Um, but uh, I didn't uh, suffer bullies. I didn't like bullies, and I always fought back, even when I know uh, I knew that I was going to lose, because it just it was the right thing to do. And I think, to some extent, that sort of carried over <laughs> to me in, in adulthood. Um, I, I'm always ready to fight the good fight if that's what's necessary. A long time ago, in the, eight, in the early '90s, um, you famously made a, a, a graph that, that a colleague. Uh, dubbed the hockey stick graph, and that that name stuck. Um, I believe there was a bit of a eureka moment leading up to that graph when you looked for the first time at some some colour imprints at, at some of some climate data. Uh, can you talk us through your, your your light bulb or eureka or ding moment when when, sure. when you just went uh, something big's happening here? Yeah, you know, it's um, the the work um, was. It, uh, you know, originally um, not really geared in any way towards the issue of climate change. Uh, we were using ancient archives, which we call proxy records, like tree rings and ice cores, um, to reconstruct past climates um, in the distant past, uh, because we wanted to get um, an idea, a, a better sense of the sort of natural um, undulations of the climate. We were trying to learn more about natural climate variability, how the El Nino phenomenon behaved uh, in distant past centuries. Um, but uh, almost as an afterthought, um, we, we took these patterns that we had reconstructed of temperature, um, and, and these spatial patterns, um, you know, show you where it's warm and where it's cold, and, and it tells you about sort of the inner workings and the dynamics of the climate system. Uh, the least interesting thing you can do is take all that rich sort of regional detail and average it away by just computing the overall average of temperature over the whole map. Um, uh, but we did that because we you know, decided it would be interesting to just look at the average temperature, uh, in this case of the northern hemisphere, because that's where we had the most data. And when we plotted that um, back in time, uh, there was sort of a eureka moment where it became clear to us that the warming spike of the past century um, uh, that continues today, you know, we just saw the warmest year on record in, in, for, the, for the entire globe in 2015, uh, 2016. Um, that warming spike um, has no precedent as far back as we could go. Um, it, it, it's not consistent with just the natural undulations. There's something different taking place. And so I think just because of the, you know, the, 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 the profound sort of uh, impression that you get looking at the hockey stick graph, it took on this iconic significance. Uh, there were other, uh, in fact, many other very compelling lines of evidence that uh, climate change is real and human caused. But the hockey stick curve, I think, just visually really conveyed the reality of climate change um, in, in a way that uh, was, you know, readily, you know, uh, you know readily understandable to somebody without you know any technical background and I think to some extent uh, that's why it became both iconic and a target it was sort of a threat to the forces of denial to those who don't want to accept that climate change is real um, they uh, recognize that this very compelling graphic was really communicating very effectively the reality of climate change to the public, and I found myself at the receiving end of uh, attacks because of that. You, you kind of started with that graph, a game that I call my graph is bigger than yours, um, and an example of my graph is bigger than yours is a book, I can't remember the title, but my dad 
who is uh, very much a climate change denier, is always um, urging me to read. So it's some sort of book that um, debunks the hockey stick graph. So here's the indulgent part of our talk where I ask you in, in, in 25 words or less what I should tell my dad uh, about why I haven't read that book yet. <laughs> Well, you know, the reason you, you haven't read that book um, is because it's nonsense. Um, and it's nonsense, you know, at a very basic level. Uh, there, there are really two things here. You could get rid of the hockey stick. Um, and there are so many other compelling lines of evidence that tell us that climate change is real and is caused by human activity, that even if I never existed, if the hockey stick had never existed, we would still uh, have a great deal of confidence uh, scientifically that, again, climate change is happening and it's caused by us and it's going to get a lot worse if we don't do something about it. Um, moreover, um, even if you got rid of the hockey stick now, there are literally dozens of other studies that have uh, been done in the nearly two decades since our original study uh, from 1998, and they've all come to the same conclusion. Um, in fact, uh, the most recent study, which was published in one of the leading journals, uh, uh, one of the Nature journals, um, by uh, nearly 80 scientists from around the world using the most comprehensive database of, of paleo data, and they came up with a curve that to the eye is almost indistinguishable from the original hockey stick curve. And it goes back further as well. And, and their study concluded that the, the recent warmth actually is unprecedented over an even longer time frame. It's currently raining outside really heavily. If I go outside in that rain, I'm extremely confident I'm going to get wet. Are you that confident that the data that you and others have collected leads um, to the Earth's climate warming through the hands of human influence? Yeah, we are. And, and I'll tell you, you know, sometimes the critics will try to portray this uh, picture of, you know, our understanding, our scientific uh, understanding as a, as a house of cards. And, you know, it all rests on the hockey stick. And if you can just discredit the hockey stick, if you can just discredit Mike Mann, <laughs> then it all goes away. And, and, and that's not the way it is, um, because it's much more, uh, I think of the evidence uh, for climate change, human-caused climate change, is like a brick wall. And there's some bricks missing. You know, we're still filling in some of the details. There are definitely things that we still haven't figured out. But the brick wall is very solid despite a few missing bricks because there's so many interlocking uh, independent lines of evidence that there would be no way to understand them. Um, they, they all lead to the same conclusion. There would be no alternative theory that you could propose that could possibly explain all these observations in the way that our understanding of the effects of uh, the uh, you know, human-caused uh, greenhouse gas increase and global warming. Um, it's literally the only way we can explain um, these disparate observations. In fact, you know, to those who say they don't believe the greenhouse effect, you know, and you have people who will say they don't even believe in the greenhouse effect. The Earth would be a frozen planet if there were no greenhouse effect. Uh, we wouldn't be able to explain why Mar uh, Venus is so hot and Mars is so cold if it weren't for the greenhouse effect. Uh, back in the 1950s, our Air Force wouldn't have been able to design heat-seeking missiles if they didn't understand the heat-absorptive properties of carbon dioxide, uh, the greenhouse effect. You actually need to, to take that into account to design a heat-seeking seeking missile. So you're saying the science you do is the science a lot of other people do and use for other reasons. 
That's exactly right, yeah. Okay. I want you to tell me the most heartbreaking thing your 11-year-old daughter ever said to you. <laughs> uh, um, well, I can tell you a moment that was heartbreaking, um, and it was, and it relates to sort of this issue, um, was when she was very young, and I, I think she was probably five or six years old at the time, maybe even younger than that. I think she was maybe four, um, and uh, we read the Lorax to her, yeah. and she she cried at the end. Right, and that's of course Dr. Seuss's great in, in, Enviro book. It, 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 it is. He, he, he was amazing, actually, in, in that regard, um, and uh, and it really and, and it struck home for me because at the at the very end, it's really about hope and do you have hope for the future, um, and it ends on this sort of note of uh, amb ambiguity. You don't know, and 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 she she. She was really saddened by that book, wow. and it affected me. Yeah. And does she follow your, your career, your, your your wife and and, and your daughter? You got these terrific girls in your life, and <laughs> yeah. And are they, they they obviously, I assume they bat for you. They bat for the work that you do. But do they ever do they ever say, Daddy, just, just or, <laughs> or or husband, just. Just ease off. Just, just come home. <laughs> well, you know, my my daughter, my daughter, frankly, uh, and both of my my wife and daughter, um, you know, uh, wish I was at home more often than I am. I travel more than they they like me to be traveling. Um, uh, they sort of know. Uh, my daughter uh, already has a sense that uh, I'm different from some of the other daddies, okay. uh, and you know, just for simple reasons like you know when uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, is in town. And he came to visit, and we all had dinner with him at the local restaurant, and and, and that was a little different. It's like her friends don't hang out with Bill Nye, the science guy, um, so she knows that something there's something a little bit different that um, that I'm sort of a public figure in, in some sense, and, and and that I'm working on you know something important. Um, and I think she, you know, uh, I think she, both my wife and my daughter feel that way, and they're very supportive, um, even during some of the difficult episodes we've had. And you alluded to some of them. Um, you know, we've had actionable, uh, actionable threats uh, against us. Uh, I had to post the phone number, the emergency phone number for the police on the refrigerator and make sure that uh, my wife and daughter, you know, uh, were ready to call that number if something should happen to us. Um, so, you know, there are the things that about being a public figure that I suppose are more positive and, 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 and my family can enjoy. Um, and then there are sort of some of the darker um, aspects of it as well, and we, we deal with both. And just when, at a sort of mid-stage in your career, um, you've established yourself as a leading scientist and a, a, a figure who's willing to, to not let the bullies push him around, to get out there, to go into bat for, for your, your hard research, you're well known, it feels like maybe you're making some advances, in, in, in getting the public on board to, to, to your, your facts and figures. And right when you're at this level, suddenly the universe almost <laughs> implodes, doesn't it? Donald Trump is elected, yeah. he fills his cabinet with people uh, who have worked for and represented um, fossil fuel industries, uh, who are uh, deniers of climate science or, or people, I don't really like that word, but people who reject the climate science. So you look ahead at the next four years, who knows, it's the next eight years, um, and you think what? 
Yeah, I mean, it's been, you know, in, in, in our book, The Madhouse Effect, um, we, we wrote the book before we knew the result of the election. And we had uh, people who told us, um, you know, why did you write a book about climate change denial? It's, it's irrelevant now. We've moved past that. Uh, and then we had this election, which, you know, very unfortunately, in a sense, validated, you know, uh, the, the, the main thrust of the book, which is that this is still something that we're contending with. And I see that, you know, the Trump uh, presidency is a, is a minor setback. Uh, I don't think it's going to, you know, fundamentally alter the path of history. I think, you know, the rest of the world is getting on board. Um, there's a recognition that we need to, to get a, a, a away from this antiquated, um, you know, fossil fuel uh, technology and embrace this great revolution, um, the a revolution of renewable energy. And, and I think that, you know, collectively the world is moving in that direction, even in the U.S. Many of the states and, and localities are moving in that direction. Uh, having a, a U.S. president that won't, um, it, it appears, actively work with the rest of the world to uh, advance the, the um, you know, the effort to combat climate change is going to make it a little tougher. And it's going to mean the rest of us have to do more. Um, because we no longer have uh, the U.S. playing the leading role that it did under the, the previous administration, under the Obama administration. Do you, um, apart from the obvious, obvious financial interests in, in some cases, do you think much about the reasons why people are not interested in or outrightly reject climate science from a sort of libertarian perspective? Here's, that's a, that's a long-winded question. See, here's what I mean by that. Um, Americans hate the thought of anything global, any global organisation. Um, you write at the end of the Madhouse Effect, we almost have to take a planet-wide environmental stance here. Right. Right. So you're not just cutting at corporate interests, you're cutting at the American psyche here. You're urging for some sort of cooperation that, that threatens Americans' freedoms, the number one thing, the Statue of Liberty, <laughs> the place through which your grandfather passed on the way to building your life in America. Yeah. You're threatening America. You're cutting at its very soul. Do you understand that? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. You know, I think Australia and the U.S., we sort of share that, that, yep. that, that history, sort of the, the rugged individualism that is, you know, the, you know that, that is our legacy. Um, and, um, and we, you know, we value uh, liberty and freedom and rightfully I think those are, are good values and, and I subscribe to them uh, I think it's useful um, you know to listen you know not necessarily to you know ivory tower academics like me uh, you know and there are some people who don't want to hear from you know a college professor uh, or a scientist but you know when the military when they have you have you know generals and admirals um, who are telling you that hey you know climate change is a real problem for us from a national security standpoint it's the number one national security threat that we face and if you look at you know the instability in the Middle East and Europe that was caused by this uh, Syrian uprising yes and if I yeah. may just briefly interrupt yeah. there yeah. I know that that you know you would never say Syrian civil war caused by climate change, but a prolonged drought of the type which we're seeing around the world, um, which are longer than old droughts used to be in many cases, uh, precipitated the movement yeah. of certain Syrian uh, people into the cities, which provoked certain social tensions. Exactly. So there are some links between the Syrian civil war 
which had basically helped spawn ISIS. Right. Um, so there's some pretty big links between the biggest terrorist problem in the world <laughs> That's right. and the biggest climatic problem in the world. Is that right? That's absolutely right. You said it better than I could say it. <laughs> and, and, and you look, for example, and, and isn't it interesting that the Trump administration uh, clearly uh, views terrorism and security as the the focus of you know their um, their agenda um, and, and 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 yet at the same time dismisses climate change the very thing that exacerbated that threat um, national security experts call it a threat multiplier because it takes existing tensions and makes them worse um, the other thing that's sort of interesting especially from a libertarian standpoint and um, a, a, a friend of mine who's a, a libertarian a very conservative Republican um, uh, and, and there are lots of things we don't agree upon you know politically I'm sure uh, but um, uh, we, we have very similar views about climate change, and I think he's going to be visiting Sydney in the near future. Bob Inglis, he was a former congressman from South Carolina who was primaried out of his uh, position um, uh, by the Koch brothers because they didn't like his stance on climate change, even though he had like a near 100% perfect lifetime conservative voting record. Um, uh, and uh, he, but he cared, he's an evangelical Christian, he sees this as a matter of our stewardship to the earth, and he now campaigns for bringing conservatives on board, um, for trying to explain to them why this is not a partisan political issue. And actually, you know, uh, there is a whole movement um, uh, among uh, uh, within the conservative movement, uh, the Green Tea Coalition. I don't know if you've heard of this. Uh, so the Tea Party, of course, is this conservative grassroots um, uprising. Uh, it, it, there's in the U.S. and it maybe has some overtones here now in Australia. Um, and uh, there is a group that calls themselves the Green Tea Coalition because they're conservative Tea Party Republicans, but they view um, the access to decentralized energy, um, you know, putting solar panels on your house. Right. You, you should have the freedom to do that. You shouldn't have to rely on some big centralized uh, grid to get your energy. So there you are. <laughs> Government <laughs> Absolutely. I never thought of that. So it's an interesting perspective, and I think what it, it what it demonstrates is that this doesn't logically break down along the partisan lines that uh, some have tried to lead us to believe. Um, um, if you think about it from that standpoint, um, you know, renewable energy actually makes a lot of sense if you're if you don't like big government. Little pockets of hope. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, I mean. Despite these little pockets of hope, do you ever just shake your fist <laughs> at the sky and just go, why is this so difficult? <laughs> well, sort of like William Shatner in... Uh, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, we all have those moments of frustration and anger, and you know, we and, and hopefully we sort of keep it to ourselves, and we and and, and we try to channel it, and try, to, and I think that's what's important. You channel it productively. You try to find a way to take, you know, the, the anger and the um, uh, the the frustration, and, and channel it productively. And and I try to do that. Okay, <laughs> one of the, the points. I liked in your, your book, The Madhouse Effect, um, I actually never thought of it in such clear terms, was you were speaking about um, what scientists get paid, or not, not in actual figures, but in terms of what's the sort of stuff that's going to get a scientist rich? 
Well, a scientist's going to get rich when he discovers new stuff, True. and that stuff gets peer-reviewed and pretty much agreed with. Um, following a bandwagon, like a climate bandwagon, ain't going to get you rich, because lots of people are researching that, because there's a lot to research. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah. So, I guess one of the, one of the um, classic arguments is, oh, you guys are just in it for the grants. I mean, someone from a billion, billion dollar industry like fossil fuels will say, you guys are in it for the money. Um, I want you to tell me, I believe that when you're a kid, a lot of the, oh, not a kid, sorry, a young student, a lot of the people you're doing physics with graduated off into strange areas and joined Wall Street and yeah. did make a squillion. Yeah, that's right. Um, you didn't do that. No, that's right. Yeah. If you, you know, with the math, um, you know, the mathematical skills um, that you develop, if you go into, you know, areas of science like uh, physics or like climate science, which is a lot of math and physics, if you want to make, if, you're, if your goal is just to make a lot of money, there are lots of opportunities for you to do that. Um, and, you know, and, and there were uh, certainly, um, you know, back in the late 1980s, when I was coming into this field, there were a lot of uh, sort of disgruntled, you know, graduate students. Students who were not satisfied with the opportunities um, in the scientific uh, arena, who did go off into Wall Street applying, you know, mathematical and statistical tools um, to helping make people a lot of money, and and they they they. they you know, made a lot of money uh, from that as well. Um, that's not what drove me. You know, it was never, you know, in general, when you, people who go into science um, go into science because they love doing science. Uh, it's not a field you, you would necessarily go into if, to make a whole lot of money. Um, there isn't a whole lot of money in science in general. And the money that we do get as academics, um, there's this sort of misconception that it goes to our pockets. When I get a government grant, that money doesn't go to my pocket. That's to fund my research program. It's to fund graduate students and to pay for publications and all that other stuff. Um, you know, my salary is set by my institution. Um, so there's a lot, and I think the problem here is most people don't understand that, and it sounds credible to them. So when a critic comes along and says, yeah, they're lining their pockets with all this grant money, um, that's an alternative fact. <laughs> it's fake news um, to use the sort of current lingo. But to the public... Uh, you know, who don't know better, it sounds credible. And I think that's why it is so important to push back on, on that really pernicious uh, accusation. And as you alluded to, there is some amount of projection there because many of the people who are making that accusation are, in fact, the ones who are with multi-billion dollar or getting, you know, paid by multi-billion dollar uh, fossil fuel entities and, and getting paid well uh, to act as advocates for their cause. And if you want to make a lot of money and uh, you don't uh, have a lot of scruples, <laughs> well, that's, that's you know, unfortunately, that's something you can do. You can advocate for fossil fuel interests attacking your fellow scientists, and, and, and that's what we're subject to. In a world of fake news, um, can climate science survive? Um, the, everything feels like everything's up for grabs now. Every fact every field of human endeavor, no matter how thoroughly undertaken, can be virtually wiped yeah. with one hyperlink, <laughs> uh, again playing my graph is bigger than yours. <laughs> um, can, can climate science survive, uh, and again, in the era of Trump, but in the era of fake news, can yeah. climate science survive? 
I, I think we can get past this current episode. And so if the, the, the environment we find ourselves in now of fake news and alternative facts and my graph is as big as your graph, and, you know, if that were to persist, I think it would fundamentally undermine our entire public discourse. It would undermine our ability to use science and technology to provide us with the things that we need to live. So I don't think human civilization can survive a sustained environment of alternative facts and, um, and, and, and fake news and the rejection of science and logic. Um, uh, we have become a, a civilization that's fundamentally dependent on technology to meet the resource needs of seven billion and growing people. And if we turn our backs on science and technology, we won't survive. Um, I believe, I, I have some faith, that this is just a temporary sort of phase that we're moving through and that ultimately there will be a, a fierce pushback um, against this this um, sort of uh, this dark this dark age that we seem to be going through uh, right now. Um, sort of, it feels like we've moved from the Enlightenment back into the Dark Ages. Uh, I don't think, just like the Dark Ages didn't uh, go on forever, I think we'll get back out of out of the madhouse, uh, to, to use that uh, analogy again. Um, I, if we don't, uh, we won't survive as a civilization. <laughs>